Our sermon text, uh, 2 Peter. We continue our study of, of 2 Peter today. So thankful for Jeremy's message last week, and it's uh, prompted me to pray continually for us that God's grace would abound to us, that uh, our obedience would show our love for Jesus. Thank you, Jeremy. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, in which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pray together. Father, give us ears to hear today, hearts to embrace this glorious passage of Scripture. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All righty, before we dive in, I just want to go ahead and point out that you've already witnessed a minor miracle on our Lord's Day gathering today. Uh, Justin Hornsby speaking briefly about Jesus, man. Uh, so praise the Lord uh, that, uh, that for that. What a great, man, what a great uh, few minutes there to, to point us to Jesus. Uh, and then I, didn't, I never realized until now what a perfect time uh, October is for starting a new members class because... Uh, uh, the f- focus on the solas during this month uh, will help our uh, class members there, that class, to understand what it means to be a Reformed church. And that's where we began today. So uh, um, thankful for those nine that were with us today. If you're visiting with us, and you can still get in. And after the, third, after the second week, it's probably too late. You need to start. But uh, if you want to jump in there with us, uh, you're thinking about maybe membership here, um, you can... Uh, get with us in week two and, and finish up with us. So just wanted to let you know about that. All righty, 2 Peter, here we go. Last time, just to kind of catch us up, uh, we focused on uh, verse 1b and the righteousness of God by which we were saved. And that was our, our focus last time. Uh, Peter is speaking to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we spent the whole time on that particular passage, that particular phrase. And we, we saw that uh, sort of a threefold statement, I believe it was Tozer that pointed this out, uh, No, it's Barnhouse, Donald Gray Barnhouse. God is righteous, okay? The Word of God, the testimony of the Word of God uh, is consistent and constant about that, revealing to us the righteousness of God. God is righteous. Secondly, God demands righteousness. And we looked at Psalm 24, uh, focusing on verses 3 and 4, and we asked ourselves these questions. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Not a single one of us. Who at times will lift up their souls to what is false? Idolatry. Well, all of us. Who at times will swear deceitfully? Who will sin with their tongue? 
All of us. So, how can we ever enter God's presence? Well, the solution to our dilemma, as Barnhouse pointed out, was point number three. God provides righteousness. He provides the righteousness that we need to approach him. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, the the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And basically God's saying, enter. Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has done it all. He's taken your sin. And now you take his righteousness as a gift. God provides the righteousness. This is what Reformed churches will call the imputed righteousness of Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to us. Also called the great exchange. Our sin, he takes our sin, we get his righteousness. And we desperately needed that. Because we could not meet the demands of Psalm 24. Only Jesus has done that in his own person and being. And as God's chosen people, we benefit from the active obedience of Christ. In imputation, Christ's clean hands become our clean hands. His pure heart becomes our pure heart. His refusal to lift up his soul to what is false becomes our refusal to commit idolatry. His refusal to swear deceitfully is credited to us. This is what the hymn writer was referring to when he wrote this line, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Why does God look at us as faultless? Because his son was faultless. And his faultlessness has been credited to us. Praise the Lord. Christ alone. Solus Christus. And according to verse 2, as we press on and grow in our knowledge of God, we experience multiplied grace and peace. As Chuck Swindle wrote, the point is that when intimate heart knowledge of God through Christ increases, our grace and peace increase as we become more like Christ. In other words, realized grace and peace are vitally connected to our knowledge of God. I submit to you, as I submitted to you two weeks ago, if grace and peace seem foreign to you, it's because your knowledge of God is very, very uh, shallow or maybe non-existent. We will see the importance of knowing God, not just knowing about Him again today. Knowledge is a key word in Peter's second letter. So let's press on to these next two verses and ponder together today our all-sufficient salvation. The title of this message is The Abundant Sufficiency of Salvation. The Abundant Sufficiency of Salvation. Now these two verses, verses 3 and 4, lay out for us beautifully the absolute sufficiency of salvation for the people of God. They show us 
how God has done it all. And I'm going to try to unpack this brief text. I mean, two verses, but man, it's chock full of stuff. Okay? So you buckle up and you hang with me, okay? I'm going to try to unpack these two verses by discussing uh, or laying before you this morning the different aspects of our salvation, not in the order that they appear in the text, but in the order in which they seemingly, because we're humans, you know, we're not divine, the order in which they seemingly occur to us. In other words, what theologians, for you Latin students out there, Latin students, we got some Latin students back there on the back row there, uh, what theologians might call the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. The order of salvation. So you with me? Not going to be in the order they appear in the text, but the order in which they uh, seem to be applying or happening to us, okay? Realizing that there's fine lines in some of those, you know, faith, repentance, when is that? But the, the logical order of salvation. Okay, number one, we see in verse 3, C, okay, verse 3C, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, here it is, who called us to his own glory and excellence, who called us according to his own glory and excellence. So, number one, our salvation is founded on the sovereign nature of God's call. We talked about this in our new members class today, the sovereignty of God and salvation. We talked about how most Christians, when asked, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? They'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe God's in control. Okay, well, what about your salvation? Well, I don't know about that. You know, I, I think I make the final call on that. I'm ultimately in charge of that. You know, Satan voted against me. God voted for me. I cast the deciding vote. Well, no, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. This is what the Bible teaches, that our salvation is founded on the sovereign nature of God's call. This is where our salvation begins. In eternity past, before the foundation of the world, when God sovereignly set his love on all of his chosen people. A couple of verses to go along with that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Every spiritual blessing. That's Paul talking. Sounds like what Peter's saying, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Yes, the two apostles saying the same thing, different words. I love when the Bible does that. It's like what John MacArthur calls hammering the nail in from a different angle, you know, to make our faith more stable and more secure. We see the constant unity of the word of God. Peter says we've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Paul says we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. All things, every. They're saying the same thing. Okay. And then he goes on in that Ephesians 1 text, even as he chose us, chose us, synonymous with called us. Again, Paul saying the same thing as Peter's saying with different wording. Peter says called, Paul says chose, same thing, same thing. Even as he chose us 
in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, that's, that's where we're headed. We're headed to standing before God, not just positionally holy and blameless because of our union with Jesus, but actually holy and blameless when we receive our glorified bodies. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, again, Paul writing, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of our works, not because of a single one of our works, not even our decision, not because of our works. Yes, we make a decision, but why? Because God has given us life. God has given us a new heart. God has raised us from the dead. And we who formerly in our uh, natural state could do nothing righteous, now we're able to do righteous things, beginning with the righteous decision to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our new heart that God has raised him from the dead. So back to 2 Timothy 1. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Watch this. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Listen. Before the ages began. Before the ages began. Another way of saying, before the foundation of the world. Eternity past. God's call, his choosing of us. In eternity past is the foundation of our salvation. That's the beginning of it. Number two, secondly, we see it in the, at the end of verse 4, 4C. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So number two, our salvation results in the undeserved grace of God's deliverance. Our salvation is founded on the sovereign nature of God's call. It results in the undeserved grace of God's deliverance. Because of this great salvation, we have, as Peter says, escaped the corruption that is in the world. Now note the tense. Note the tense. He says, having escaped. Having escaped. In other words, the rescue comes first. The rescue comes first after the call, okay, which is eternity past, but in our, in our life, okay, in the present, in this age, the rescue comes first in terms of what we realize. God delivers us by giving us a new heart and new desires whereby we want to flee the world. We want to flee youthful passions. We want to flee sexual immorality. We want to flee idolatry. Now, there may be other flea verses out there, but those are the three that came to mind this morning as I put the finishing touches on this. We want to flee those things. 
We want to escape, though. We want to get away from those. And it's only because God gives us the desire and the power, not just the desire, but also the power to do that. As one commentator put it, quote, escape here does not mean run away from or flee, but puts the main focus on being free or being delivered from something. In other words, it gives God the glory. It gives God the credit. We're not fleeing because of our own inherent goodness, because we love the pigsty. We love the world, okay? But when God gives us a new heart, and brings us by his grace to our senses, we want to leave the pigsty, just like the prodigal. We want to come to the Father. God gives us the desire, desire and the power to do that. God delivers us from the clutches of the satanic world system and brings us into fellowship with himself. He radically changes our desires from being focused on what the world offers and desiring that to being focused on what pleases God and desiring that instead. And that's the next point. And we see it in the middle part of verse 4, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So, our salvation is founded on the sovereign nature of God's call. It results in the undeserved grace of God's deliverance. And it initiates an undivided union with God's nature. An undivided union with God's nature. So that through Him, through them, you may become partakers of partakers of the divine nature. Let's explore this, this, this pregnant phrase, this phrase pregnant with, with meaning and, 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 and gladness and, and wonder and, and beauty and joy, partakers of the divine nature. First, let's, let's mention what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that we become, as many of the uh, false teachers of our day would, would say, it does not mean we become little gods, uh, as, as people like uh, Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar and Paula White would um, proclaim. I was at, um, I mean, I were at the Ark last week for the pastors' conference, the annual pastors' conference. We 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 went. We, we signed up early because we saw the topic raising godly generations, and uh, uh, that just clicked with me because of our love for our kids' rockers and our our uh, our ministry with them. So, well, I wanted to go to that. And one of the sessions was uh, uh, Justin Tyler and his. Uh, he was un- unveiling, uh, exposing some of the false teachers of our day, and. Uh, there were several, uh, but, but here's an example of, uh, of a quote from Paula White. Uh, she said this, quote, Jesus is not God's only begotten son because we are two. Can you even imagine such heresy even being uttered? 
Can can you imagine? As uh, R.C. Sproul said, quote, we do not become divine, but we partake of the presence of God in our very souls. And I love the way uh, the commentator Simon Kistemacher says it. I I love this. This is a great paragraph right here. Peter says that we participate in God's nature, not in God's being. He has chosen the term nature because it indicates growth, development, and character. In other words, something you can grow into. See, God doesn't grow. God has no need to grow. God's being is eternal, transcendent, imminent, unchanging. Okay, so the, word, the term nature is connected to growth, development, and character. He continues, the expression being, by contrast, points to essence and substance. We can never participate in God's essence, for we are and remain human beings who have been created by God. We're creatures. We're creatures. God is creator. We're creatures. We are created beings. What Peter discloses is that we share God's holiness, which we experience through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings us into union with Christ as adopted children of the Father. In other words, we are in fellowship. In fact, the word partaker, the word partake, is from the Greek word koinonia. Fellowship, very, very common, popular Greek term that we've talked about a lot here. When we come to this table, we'll be in koinonia with Jesus in a spiritual sense and with each other as we gather around the table of grace. So partakers translates from the Greek word koinonos, which is the same root word translated fellowship. We are in fellowship with the entire trinity. Listen, listen to some of the ways Scripture expresses this beautiful truth. Like in Romans 6, 5, emphasis being on union with Christ. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or how about 1 Corinthians 1.9, where the emphasis is on fellowship. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the Apostle John, in, one, in his first brief letter at the end of the New Testament, kind of unpacks that a little bit. When he begins his first letter like this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. In other words, the life of God was made manifest, real in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest, made real to us. That which we have seen 
and and heard, we proclaim also to you so that, purpose statement, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, the fellowship that we want you to enjoy, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then Jesus, in John 15, talks about it with the emphasis on the word abiding. John 15, beginning at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me, unless you become partakers with me in the divine nature. These are all just different ways of saying what Peter is saying here. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So bearing fruit like obedience that Jeremy talked about last week is proof that we are disciples, followers, lovers of Jesus. And where does that bearing fruit Begin with abiding in Christ, or as Peter would say, becoming partakers of the divine nature. Jesus continues, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, obedience, there it is from Jeremy last week. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, isn't that amazing? That's exactly the way the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right, ended his, the first paragraph of his first letter. The connection to joy, the connection to joy. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John, I write these things that our joy may be full. These guys were listening. These guys were listening to Jesus. Don't you love the Word of God? Don't you love the unity of the Word of God? Doesn't that give you confidence and stability in your Christian life? One of my newly... uh, favorite uh, devotional books has become uh, a two-volume set called Reading Between the Lines uh, by Glenn Scribner. New guy to me, never heard of him before this year, but volume one is Old Testament, volume two is New Testament. Uh, He takes kind of highlights from the Testaments and and then comments on them. And uh, on, on this particular subject, he wrote this. I, lo- I love this. And this, this, I hope this will just hammer it deep into your heart today. 
the importance of this concept of becoming a partaker of the divine nature and this union that we have with Jesus and this fellowship we have with the Trinity and the sovereignty of God in that. Listen to what he says here. God has joined me to Christ. My union with Jesus is God's achievement. Not a potential reward, but a done deal. So this union is not something we're waiting for to to get in heaven. It's now. We're in union with Jesus and the Father through the indwelling Holy Spirit now. Okay? That's that's the big point. It's, It's a... It's what theologians call an indicative. It's, it's, it's a truth. It doesn't matter how you feel. Yeah, we, none of, we all have times where we don't, we don't feel like we're in union with Jesus. We all know that. We all experience that. But that doesn't change the indicative. That doesn't change the truth. It's a done deal. He goes on. Just as with marriage books, there are a million paperbacks promising to put the romance back into your Christian walk. There are tips and techniques, but what do we need first? We first need a conviction regarding the strength of the union. God has joined me to Jesus. Let me stop right there. See, if you don't believe that, none of the tips or techniques are going to do it for you. Okay? If you don't begin here, I'm in union with Christ. I feel like Dirt, but the Bible tells me I'm in union with Jesus. I've confessed Jesus as Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says I'm saved, and therefore I've been brought into union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And I'm a new person in Christ. And I've been united to the Trinity. I'm in fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And no matter how I feel, I believe that truth with every fiber of my being. That's where we have to begin. The tips and techniques will not help you if you don't have that assurance. So he goes on. God has joined me to Jesus. That's where I start. So then look full in the face of your bridegroom, Jesus, and call to mind the wedding ring, i.e. your baptism. Know that you are one with him like a body to a head. The union, now get this, the union is not as strong as your human feelings or faithfulness. It's as strong as God's faithfulness. There it is, beloved. There it is. If you're born again, God has saved you. You're in. You're in forever, for good. You cannot lose it. You cannot negate it. You cannot cancel it. You're in. And it doesn't, doesn't depend on how you feel. It doesn't depend on your faithfulness. That's good news, isn't it? That's gospel stuff. 
You know, we never outgrow the gospel. We never spiritually outgrow the gospel, no matter how mature we are. We need to constantly be reminded of the good news of the gospel. Because some days we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to feel real good. And the enemy's going to come with, with shame and guilt. But we look him in dead in the eye and say, no, God has joined me to himself. And it doesn't depend on my feelings or my faithfulness or my actions. It depends on God's faithfulness. And his faithfulness is great. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. It is not your love, listen, it is not your love that sustains your covenant union with Jesus. But from now on, let your covenant union with Jesus sustain your love. Are you loving God a little bit more right now? Just thinking about that? You're in covenant union with the Trinity, with the creator of all things. Because of him. In other words, we love him because what? He first loved us. We rejoice in our union with Christ because God in his love for us made it happen. And it's unbreakable. And that's the connection to the next point. Okay? So, our salvation is founded on the sovereign nature of God's call from eternity past. It results in the undeserved grace of God's deliverance from the world and its evil system. It initiates, see, in 2 and 3, you know, that's what I was trying to say while I go. It's, it, it's, it's hard to delineate 2 and 3. They, they come exactly together, really, okay? The escape from the world and the entrance into the partaking, the union with God's nature, they're right there together, okay? So we're, our salvation initiates an undivided union with God's nature. And fourth, we see this in the First phrase of verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Our salvation is strengthened by the unbreakable promises of God's word. The unbreakable promises of God's word. These promises, as Peter says, are great and they are precious. They are great and precious. Charles Spurgeon said, but here we have promises that are so great that they are not less than infinite and so precious that they are not less than divine. What are some of these promises? I start a list this week. Let me get you started. What about total forgiveness? That's a pretty good promise. That's a precious promise. Heaven. 
a place to live with Jesus forever. He's preparing a place for us. The indwelling Holy Spirit, the joy of Jesus. He has given us his joy, an eternal family, the church, each other. Look, look at that person next to you. If they're a safe person, you're going to live with them forever. I hope that's good news for you. Strength to persevere in the most difficult and gut-wrenching and heartbreaking of times. Comfort in grief. It could go on and on and on. I love A.W. Tozer's prayer uh, on, on, at the end of one of the, his daily devotionals. He's, Dear Lord, thank you that so many of your promises in Scripture have already come true, especially the advent of your son Jesus. Christmas has already come. The greatest promise has already been given to us. The greatest promise that the Old Testament prophets spoke of, we've already received. He goes on, you are a faithful, holy God in whom there is no guile or deceit. Your promise of heaven is just as real as the promise of a Savior. So, finally, number five, our salvation is sustained by the unending provision of God's power. The unending provision of God's power. We see that in the very first phrase. So we're ending with the very first phrase. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Our salvation is sustained by the unending provision. It never runs out. Of God's power. The word power here translates the Greek word dunamis, from which we get the uh, word dynamite. It is an amazing, undeniable, overwhelming power. It is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul spoke of that power in Colossians 1.29 when he said this, For this I toil. What was the this? Well, if you look back at the letter, it's the... the uh, uh, the teaching, the discipleship, the maturity of those that he was ministering to. He says, for this I toil. For this I work my tail off. For this I expend everything that I am. For this I toil. Struggling with all his energy, dunamis, that he powerfully works within me. He prayed that we would understand this power in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He prayed that believers would know, quote, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, dunamis, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. R.C. Sproul said, it is no human potentiality realized by the flesh so in fleshly power but as Peter tells us a divine and supernatural work of God 
in the soul. And beloved, only God can do this. Only God can do this for us. God, the almighty creator of all things, is the source of this divine power. Only God can give new life to those who are dead in sin. Only God can raise us to resurrection life in his son. Only God, by his spirit, can transform us and sanctify us and make us more and more like his son. Sproul continues, if you are a believer in Christ, so I'm speaking, speaking to believers right now. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have an inclination toward the things of God, at some point in your life, you encountered the touch of the divine in your soul. That inclination did not arise from your bosom. You didn't drum it up. You didn't dwell it up from the depths of your depraved soul. No. Why? Because there's no one righteous. No, not one. Not one. No one does good. No one. Did not arise from within you. It came from the Spirit of God. Divine power through the knowledge of the one who called us. By his righteous activity, he has made us alive. And beloved, he is continuing to conform us into the likeness of Jesus. Bless his holy name. So let's wrap it up. As we conclude, I I encourage you to examine yourself regarding these two points. Number one, the beautiful realization. The beautiful realization. As born-again people, listen to me now, because people may not express this with their words, but sometimes by their living, they betray what they're really thinking. As born-again people, we have been given all we need to live a godly life. We've been given all we need. To live a godly life. I mean, how clear can it get? What does Peter say? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does he say? We have been granted all things. All things what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. All things. We're lacking nothing. We're missing nothing. God's not holding out on us. When we were saved, we were given all things. God has completely gifted us to live a life that pleases Him. He hasn't held anything back that would help us in this life. All things that pertain to life. In other words, all things that pertain to living life the way God desires for us to live. And all things that pertain to godliness, all things that pertain to living a holy life, a God-honoring life. So we have no excuse. 
We have no excuse. God's given us everything we need. Everything we need has been granted to us as a gift. As a gift. By the grace of God, the undeserved grace of God. God, Listen, God didn't save us and then throw us out in the world and say, okay, you, you figure it out. You, you figure it out. We don't have to reform ourselves. No, he gave us a book. And he gave us his spirit. And by that spirit, we are being transformed into the increasing likeness of Christ. Paul, listen, Paul says it like this in Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. He says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Like things like critical race theory. Okay? I'm really tempted to jump off right there, but I won't. I'll control myself and we'll, I'll be a subject for another day. But don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Comes back to Justin, Christ alone. Christ alone. Don't be bewitched by philosophies that are outside of Jesus. And then he says this, basically saying the same thing Peter's saying. He says it, but he says it like this For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God dwells in Jesus, the incarnation. But then he says this, and you have been filled in him. In other words, you are complete in him. You've been filled to the brim in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You are complete in Christ, believer. You lack nothing. You lack no good thing. You've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Chuck Swindoll said, through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, which is the life of the risen Christ, all believers are fully equipped with the power of God when they first believe. Now you say, well, Butch, I, man, I, it just doesn't feel that way. I just, I, it's not there. Well, here's, here's the basic requirement for you to get there. Knowing God. <laughs> Knowing God. We have been given all things. Look at what Peter says. We've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us. Through the knowledge of him who called us. 
So if you're not uh, getting the solid assurance that Peter is talking about here, maybe it's because your knowledge is either shallow or non-existent. As we've said many times already in just the first four verses of our study of this letter, God doesn't care about us knowing about him. He cares about us knowing him and his son, Jesus. One of the classic books in Christian literature is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. If you've not read that, that's a must read. And it's an old one. I mean, it's, it's what, 70s or 80s maybe written. But it was one of the first books I read after getting saved. And, and you, you need to read that. But here's an excerpt. I'll give you an excerpt to get you started. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus saith the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Hosea 6, 6. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, to put it more in the contemporary, God desires you to know him intimately and personally than being physically in a church building. Now, your growth in knowledge of God will move you to want to be here. But churches are filled with people who do not know God. And we don't want that to happen here. We're, we're, we're a Baptist church, right? Uh, new members class. That means we believe in a redeemed membership. We baptize people who believe. We want our members to be believers. And that equates with knowing God. Knowing God. And he finishes the quote by saying this. Once you have become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So, dear friend, do you know God? Do you know God? Is, is knowing Him better and better your priority in life? Or have other things bumped that aside? God doesn't really care about how much we know about him. He wants us to know him personally, intimately, increasingly, in a growing manner. He wants us to know his son, Jesus. 
to be continually conformed into his likeness by the sanctifying power of his spirit. So is this happening to you? If not, today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the great privilege, the great, indescribable, unequaled privilege of knowing you, of knowing, actually knowing personally our Creator, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord and King. Thank you for this great privilege, Father. And please continue to grow us, those of us who do know you, continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of who you are and who your Son is by the power and ministry of your precious Holy Spirit who lives in us, who reveals your word, who illuminates your word to us, who sanctifies us by your word, who washes us. Help us to know you better, Father. And for those who do not know you who are here today, open their eyes. Open their eyes and bring them into saving union with yourself. Bless our time at the table now. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.